So over the last uh, few months, over the summer, we've been going through the seven letters of the book of Revelation together as a church. And this morning I'd like to share with you something that you might not have noticed about these letters. If you're in the preaching group, you already know about all this because I've talked about this before. So no giving away hintsies, all right? Uh, You see, as Jesus speaks out these letters to John one by one, because these are the words of Jesus that John wrote down. Uh, He's actually working his way through the whole history of God's people in the Bible. And so we're going to spend some time now going through these letters one at a time. I'm not going to read the whole letter out. (laughs) But we're going to see if we can work out what's going on. What's the big picture that Jesus is trying to paint as we go through these letters? And a big clue that we're going to look out for is this. Look at the promises that Jesus makes near the end of each letter. So the first letter, uh, which is the letter to Ephesus. Jesus promises the believers, I'll put it up on the screen, that if they're victorious, they will get to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. What Bible story does that remind you of? Go on. Adam and Eve, what? Adam and Eve, the Garden of Eden, that's right. Where else do we find the tree of life? Where else do we find the garden of God, the paradise of God? That's right, this is referring to Adam and Eve, the Garden of Eden. There we go. Second letter to Smyrna. So this is a bit of a tricky one. That was an easy one to ease you into it. Uh, Jesus says that the suffering believers, they're about to be thrown into prison, but that if they're faithful, they will be given rule and authority over the nations. Can you think of someone in the Bible who suffered, was thrown into prison, but was eventually given rule and authority? Joseph. That's right. There you go. So we've moved from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Genesis. All right. And now we're gonna, it's going to be bigger picture, all right? So uh, in the third letter to Pergamum, Jesus mentions someone called Balaam, a false teacher called Balaam, who tempted Israel to sin against God. And he promises that those who are victorious will be given manna, heavenly manna, as their reward. What part of the Bible does that bring to mind? Where do we find someone called Balaam, something called manna? What are you saying? Moses, so that's, yeah, Moses, the time of Moses, Israel in the wilderness, so Exodus through Deuteronomy, basically, that whole wilderness wandering period, you have manna, you have the, you have this guy called Balaam, the whole story about the donkey, all of that stuff, Um, and in the fourth letter to Thyatira, Jesus condemns a false prophetess called Jezebel, and promises that those who are victorious will rule the nations with an iron rod. What period of history in the Bible does that sound like? Where, Where do we find Jezebel? Are you going to say something, Penny? Uh, Elijah. That's right, Elijah, Elisha, the period of the kings, the Israelite monarchy, the kingdom era. Um, and so the next one, the fifth letter, the letter to Sardis. Jesus uh, warns the believers that he's bringing judgment against them, but promises to preserve a faithful few, a faithful remnant through that period. Can you think of a time when Israel experienced God's judgment, but a faithful remnant were preserved? You got an idea? The exile. The exile, that's right. The time of exile. Um, that's right. That's exactly what happened. The Babylonians, the Assyrians came up against Israel and, uh, and killed many of them and took them into exile. But a faithful remnant were preserved. Uh, the, uh, which one are we on now? The sixth letter to Philadelphia. Uh, Jesus promises the believers that they'll become a pillar in the temple of my God and that they will have a share in the new Jerusalem. When This should be an easy one, because Dan did a series on this earlier in the year, if you're listening. But when was the city of Jerusalem and its temple renewed and restored? 
Nehemiah, that's right, Ezra and Nehemiah, you know, that return after the exile where the people came back to the land. And finally, the seventh letter today that we'll be looking at, the letter to Laodicea, Jesus invites the believers to come and eat with him. Can you think of a special meal that Jesus shared with his followers? There's a clue right here. The Last Supper, that's right. Holy Communion as we share it today. And so as we can see, as we read through these letters, um, there's this big picture story that Jesus is painting. The story of the whole Bible that began all the way in the Garden of Eden and goes all the way up to Jesus coming to dwell amongst us in human flesh. And you guys know I love this big picture stuff. So this is like right up my street, right? But why is Jesus doing this? Uh, What's he trying to tell the Asian churches by organizing the letters in this way what point is he trying to make well we read in several of the letters about these unbelieving jews who were taunting them and saying nasty things about them jesus calls them a synagogue of satan you can imagine the sort of things they might have said that they said well you say you're the true people of god you have the real messiah you have the promises no we're the real people of god you know we've been the people of god for thousands of years And you think you can just show up and claim a share in the promises of God at the absolute last minute. And you can imagine it might have really gotten to them. Perhaps they'd have thought, what right do we have as Gentiles? We showed up to the party at the last minute. And now can we really claim to be part of God's people, part of this same grand story of salvation, which began right at the beginning? And what Jesus is saying by writing the letters in this way is, yes, the whole story of the Bible is your story too. Through me and through what I've done, you are part of this grand story of salvation which began right in the Garden of Eden. Don't let others put you down because you showed up late to the party. As Jesus says in Matthew's Gospel, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. And maybe there are some here today who feel a bit like those early Christians. Maybe you think, I showed up to this party late. I didn't grow up in a Christian family. I don't know the Bible stories or songs off by heart. What use could God have for me? And Jesus would say the same thing to you that he said to them. You're just as much a part of the story as anyone else. Don't be discouraged. Don't let anyone put you down. Come and join me at the feast with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. I hope that's an encouragement to you, not to see yourself as an outsider looking in, but to see yourself as Jesus sees you. In the kingdom of heaven, there is a seat at the table with your name written on it. So let's have a look now at the letter to the church in Laodicea, the final of the seven letters. To begin with, I'd like to bring to your minds a famous story that you probably already know by Hans Christian Andersen, the tale of the emperor's new clothes. Here's a geeky picture I can find on the internet. Um, A story about a great emperor who's tricked into thinking he's wearing the finest garments in the land. But then he's exposed by a little boy who reveals him to be completely naked. And that's just like the church in Laodicea, you see. They thought they had everything they needed. Wealth, fine clothes, the best food. But just like the little boy in the story, Jesus exposes them. He calls them wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. Their pride and comfort masked a deep spiritual poverty They'd become lazy and indulgent, uncaring about the things of God. And we can be just like that too in the West, particularly in this country. We've had a grand empire for hundreds of years and a long history of Christianity. 
And yet we can be so spiritually lacking. All of that prestige can go to our heads. We can often be deeply unaware of our spiritual needs. Which leads us to the question that we're going to be wrestling with today. What are our spiritual needs? What are our spiritual needs as a church? So if you have a look with me at verse 15, there you'll see our first spiritual need as a church. Where it says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. So our first spiritual need then is this. We need to be serious about sin. We need to be serious about sin. Imagine it's a hot summer's day and there's a cool, refreshing glass of lemonade waiting for you on the side. Like this, lots of ice, lots of lemon, very delicious. Or imagine it's a cold winter's night and there's a warm, comforting cup of cocoa waiting for you by an open fireplace. Doesn't that sound nice? (laughs) But now, suppose that cool, refreshing glass of lemonade was left out in the sun for a few hours and went lukewarm and lost all of its fizz. Or suppose the warm, comforting cocoa were just left out in the snow and turned cold and tepid. Does that sound as enjoyable as the first two examples? Probably not, unless you have a weird taste in drinks. (laughs) That's exactly what Jesus had to say about the church in Laodicea. You see, hot drinks are meant to be enjoyed. Hot and cold drinks are meant to be enjoyed cold. But like a tepid cup of cocoa or a flat, lukewarm glass of lemonade, the church in Laodicea had become lukewarm. And Jesus says he will spit them out of his mouth. The life of a believer should have both hot and cold in it. We should have a warmth towards good things, things concerning righteousness, truth, justice. And we should have a coldness within us towards evil things, things concerning sin and falsehood and injustice. As Paul says in Romans 12, chapter 9, Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. And when it comes to being lukewarm, we can be like this too, can't we? I almost felt as I was reading through this letter that it could have been written to the church in England Lukewarmness is almost like a national thing, isn't it? If there's one thing the English hate, it's being too enthusiastic about anything, about justice and righteousness and things like that. Anyone who dares to take these things too seriously gets written off as a weirdo, a fanatic, a fundamentalist. And sometimes we can let that affect our thinking as Christians too. We can become indifferent to the evil around us, uncaring and callous. When we read about or witness things going on around us which are deeply wrong, we sometimes feel an urge not to make a big deal out of it. We want to stand out. We want to draw attention to it. We might even make a joke out of it to take the edge off a bit. But God is very clear in his word. We must love what is good and hate what is evil. Even if that means being a bit countercultural, Even if that means we have to seem like the odd one out sometimes. Even if it's uncomfortable or awkward. How can we do this? How can we train ourselves to actively love good and hate evil? By dwelling in the word. As we soak ourselves in the pages of scripture, we learn more and more about God's character, about the things that God loves and the things that God hates. And as we do this, as we meditate upon the word, we become more like God. We love the things that he loves and we hate the things that he hates. So that whenever we encounter anything in the world, we instinctively feel the way that God feels about it. It almost reminds me of that, that famous psalm, Psalm 1, the first passage I ever preached on, actually, which um, 
talks about the man of God, the righteous man, um, being uh, meditating on God's law day and night, being like a tree planted in the streams of God's word, being constantly renewed and changed by God's word. What does your Bible reading look like at the moment? Do you spend time regularly in God's word? When you do read the Bible, are you taking the time to meditate upon it, to really learn to think and feel about the world the same way that God does? Or is your Bible reading a time to make a few quick tweaks, a few quick applications here and there, but without ever really changing your thinking about the world? God wants to transform us. He wants to make us more like him in our attitudes, our desires, our habits. We need to take the time to hear the voice of God, to be transformed and renewed by his word. Have a look with me at verse 17, and there you'll see our next spiritual need as a church. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realise that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, so you can become rich and white clothes to wear, so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. So then here's another spiritual need that we have. We need to depend on Jesus and not material comforts. We need to depend on Jesus and not material comforts. In around 60 AD, the city of Laodicea was destroyed by an earthquake. As the Roman historian Tacitus tells us, Laodicea collapsed in an earthquake, but recovered through its own resources with no help from us. So according to Tacitus then, the government of Rome offered to provide financial aid and resources to Laodicea to help them rebuild after the earthquake. But they refused all offers of help. They apparently had the resources to rebuild the city all by themselves. Imagine if that happened to us. There was a massive earthquake in Tilehurst, and the government said, here's a load of money to fix everything. Do you think we'd turn it down? No, no way. We'd be like, can you fix the potholes while you're at it as well? Um, <laughs> But they did. They, they, apparently they needed no help from the Roman Empire. They had everything that they needed themselves. And you can imagine how this would have made them feel. They'd lived through an earthquake and rebuilt their city without anyone's help. They were self-sufficient. They didn't need anyone else. And we can see in the passage that the believers in Laodicea had something of this mentality too. They thought they had everything they needed in life and didn't need to depend on anyone. They were saying to themselves, according to Jesus, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But Jesus thinks otherwise. He doesn't mince his words. Jesus never minces his words. He exposes them for what they actually are. You are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. You see, this material comfort masked a deep-seated spiritual need that they were unwilling to confront. They'd become dependent upon their riches and material comforts for their spiritual well-being. Perhaps they saw themselves as exceptionally blessed by God because of their great wealth. But what happens then if one day that wealth vanishes? What happens if it's taken away from them all in a moment? The Apostle Paul warns of this danger in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, 
but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. And isn't this a danger for us too? The richest people that ever lived in the first century church, even in Laodicea, could hardly dream of the incredible wealth that we enjoy today. We have a wealth of technology, convenience and comfort which far surpasses any other generation in history. At the press of a button, we can have an exotic surplus of food delivered to our door. You know, we can have power and light to heat our homes at the flick of a switch and a wide selection of entertainment options at our fingertips. And that in itself isn't wrong, but material blessings can be a danger to us. They can be a trap. They can make us dependent on them rather than being dependent upon God. And so given that temptation, how can we avoid the trap of dependence on riches? How can we keep our eyes fixed on eternity? By coming to Jesus, by coming to the one who can offer us a comfort and a wealth which is greater than anything that the world has to offer. Because all these descriptions, wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked, all of them in some sense were true of Jesus. He became an object of ridicule and pity on the cross. He was stripped naked and humiliated for us. He became poor for our sakes, surrounded in darkness and crying out to God. That's why he can offer us gold refined in the fire, because he became poor for us and passed through the fire of judgment for us. That's how he can give us white robes, by first being stripped naked and humiliated for us. That's why he has salve for our eyes, because he has passed through the darkness of Calvary and come out on the other side. And so I urge you, come to Jesus. Don't let yourself be distracted by the pleasures of this world. Learn to be still and undistracted in the presence of Jesus on a regular basis. Be still and know that I am God, as the psalmist says. This can be hard to do in a world of constant distraction, of constant entertainment and wealth and privilege, but we need to make it a priority. We have to use whatever means are available to us. We have to maybe limit our screen time or set aside time each and every day to, to dwell in the word or go on walks and pray. We have some lovely parks in Tilehurst, you know. Um, whatever helps you, whatever habits and disciplines help you to keep your focus on Jesus each and every day. What's another spiritual need of ours according to the passage? Have a look with me at verses 19 to 20. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. So then, here is another spiritual need of ours. We need to examine ourselves. We need to examine ourselves. When Jesus mentions coming in and eating with us, he's talking about the Lord's Supper. <laughs> now, at first thought, that seems really strange. Weren't the believers in Laodicea already celebrating communion regularly, as all churches did? In fact, I bet they celebrated it even more enthusiastically than all of the other churches. I bet they had the most luxurious bread in the Roman Empire, the very finest wine on offer. I bet they spared no expense in their celebration of the supper. So there was probably some eating and drinking going on. You know, we can, we can figure out that much. But here's the question. Where is Jesus in all of this? Where is Jesus? I stand at the door and knock. Jesus was outside. 
He wasn't part of the meal. Whatever meal they were celebrating, it wasn't the Lord's Supper. They'd forgotten the whole point of communion. The Apostle Paul offers a similar criticism to the rich believers in Corinth. He writes in 1 Corinthians 11, When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Instead of waiting for the poorer believers to join them, the rich believers were just going ahead and eating without them. They turned the the supper, a symbol of the death of Christ and the unity of all believers, into a private party, an occasion for gluttony and drunkenness, a grand party to celebrate their lavish wealth. And what was the answer to this problem? As Paul says in verse 28 of that passage, a man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. And the church in Laodicea needed to do the same thing. They needed to examine themselves. As Jesus says in verse 19 that we've just read out, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Before we come to the Lord's table, then we must examine our hearts. We have to get serious about our sin and repent of it before we eat and drink or else we could drink judgment upon ourselves. And in fact, this is true of the Christian life in general. Repentance shouldn't just be a one-off thing we do before we celebrate communion. It should be something that is part of our daily lives, you know, built into the warp and woof of the Christian life, a life of continual repentance. Be honest with yourself. How often when you've sinned against God, do you take the time to say sorry to God for it instead of presuming on God's grace? How often, even when we do say it, are we just going through the motions, saying the words to get it over and done with? God calls us to examine ourselves continually, to search our hearts and truly repent of our sins, to turn away from them and recommit ourselves to him each and every day so that we might be forgiven and know the assurance that God wants us to have in Jesus Christ. As John says in that famous verse in his first letter, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. The letter ends with an incredible promise that if we are faithful to Jesus, we'll be enthroned with him just as he is enthroned with the Father, that we will rule creation at the right hand of Jesus. Isn't that amazing? How could all of the wealth and comforts of this life ever compare to that? To ruling over the universe with Jesus. Can you put a price on that? Christian, this is your future. In Jesus, you have a spiritual fortune, a spiritual treasure in heaven, which far exceeds anything that this world has to offer. I conclude with the words of John in the final chapter of Revelation. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that there would be no lukewarmness in us. I pray that we would um, share your heart and your desires for the world. That we would love the things you love. That we would hate the things that you hate. That you would use your word to conform us, mould us, bend us, Lord, to your will. To make us more and more like you in every possible way. 
I pray that we would learn often to be still in the presence of Jesus, not to be distracted by all the distractions around us, the amazing entertainment and food and luxuries and things, but that we would often, regularly, daily, take time to focus on the Lord Jesus and to remember what he's done and to dwell in his presence. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would take our sins seriously, that we would practice a life of continual repentance, Lord, always coming to you and to find our comfort and assurance in life in you and not in anything around us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.